This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Hello, I'm Scott Soshnick. And I'm Evan Novi Williams, and this is the Go Dog Sikkim Sports Business Podcast, the Sportacast. <laughs> I'll give you a plus plus for enthusiasm. I sorry for the chuckle. I did not. I was not prepared. I didn't think that was coming. Nothing in your demeanor hinted it was coming. There was no foreshadow. You you just did it. There's, there's barking typically at the end of that one, but I decided to spare our listeners and not do the uh, not do the full thing. Good, I would appreciate it. And uh, <laughs> shout out to my good pal Wit Clay. He better be a listener to the podcast. Used to make fun of him all those years ago, going to a northern school at Syracuse University, always with a Georgia hat, sweatshirt, shirt, something. You know that there are longtime Georgia fans who were. Awfully happy. And I would think, by the way, that there's got to be some measure of extra enjoyment. Yeah, had you beaten Michigan, had you beaten UCLA, Ohio State, whatever. But to beat Alabama, I would think for a Georgia fan, Georgia players, that's got to be a little extra special. I think that's absolutely right. That Georgia was in the national title game three years ago, lost to Alabama. The, the coach, Kirby Smart, a longtime Nick Saban assistant. I think it's fair to say that the entire college football world, maybe outside of Clemson, has spent the last decade trying to catch up to the top tier led by Alabama. Uh, and this, I would imagine, if you're a Georgia fan, feels like the arrival of Georgia onto that same tier as their SEC rival. Yeah, my, my favorite line, you know, I, I look around, I see things on Twitter and I'm like, all right, what catches my eye? And again, I don't remember who put this out there, but like, oh, overheard as fans were leaving the venue, like, oh, where are we playing? Like Alabama fans, clearly, you know, Alabama garb that where are we playing next year? L.A. Oh, good. That's much better. <laughs> so, just sort of this like it's not even the like entitlement. Yeah, maybe will we it's this, this entitled well of course we'll be in the national championship game again but i gotta tell you uh the tv numbers would suggest what it, it was higher than last year but that's just about it is there an alabama fatigue because it wasn't blowout central the game was close within a score until the late interception so why? I mean, I know we had the semifinals on New Year's Eve, so those numbers weren't great, but I understand it's New Year's Eve. Did it take steam out of it? Why do you believe the numbers were what they were? Yeah, it's such an interesting question because 
so often when we talk about ratings, I see ways to contextualize it that look really good and ways to contextualize it that look really bad. This game averaged 22.6 million viewers. It's the most watched non-NFL sporting event in two years. It's also the most watched cable TV event of the year. Both those things sound really those good. Are good. Yeah, it is the second good. worst college football title game ever for ESPN. That sounds really bad. Uh, so th- th- there's ways to look at this both ways. I wonder if Scott, you're right. The game was close uh, for the en- entire game until until the final minute, uh, but it was not particularly exciting. I don't think there was a touchdown until there was a minute Lots left of in, field in the goals. third yeah, quarter. Yeah. Eyeballs don't love um, field goals. Yeah, there there may be a chance that 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 you got kind of the the people leaving the telecast not because it wasn't close, but because there wasn't a lot of scoring happening. I would imagine that that that's part of it. Again, we talked about this on the show last week. The, the fact that these two teams played about four weeks ago in the SEC championship game, I know there's a lot of college football fans who are thinking, looking at this matchup and they say, I've seen this game. I watched it. I watched these exact two teams play uh, in, in a title game four weeks ago. People that, that would maybe rather see something other than two SEC Titans playing yet again in the title game. I think there's maybe uh, those two things uh, are kind of factoring in here because otherwise th- this should be exactly what ESPN wants a close game the entire way the team that hasn't won a national title in over four decades ends up winning it exciting fashion with a with a lot of scoring in the fourth quarter all those things feel like they should be a recipe for huge success for ESPN so you're telling me this could be the college football version of Yankees Red Sox where the rest of the country's like eh. <laughs> I know it's Yankees Red Sox where, you know, during the regular season, that's always a ratings bonanza as, as good as they can get. But just the little fatigue and the fact that it's so provincial that the rest of the country just says, I'm, I'm not all that interested. Yeah, that may be a good analogy because I would think any any TV executive that has the ALCS would would love for it to be Yankees Red Sox, right? Just the thought of of having the two some of the most popular, most powerful, biggest brands in your title game is usually a great thing. And that's essentially what happened here. Georgia and Alabama are cream of the crop when it comes to national followings, national brands, the amount of money they spend on their programs, et cetera. Um, but it just didn't seem to fully translate. Uh, we should also mention, obviously, that that the, the amount of people that are leaving the cable bundle kind of permanently changes the way we think about these numbers. And a, a 22.7 average rating in, in today's cable environment uh, is actually probably equivalent as a percentage of cable viewers to a much, much higher number, even four or five years ago. Any chance I get, and it just so happens here that it happens to be on the pod, that I can use the word diminution, you know, I'm going to go for <laughs> it, right? Like a diminution of the cable bundle of viewers. Yeah, it's it's the entire ecosystem is changing, right? But what I hear more and more from TV executives now and network executives, as well as the advertisers, is the value, the proposition still by the aggregation of the viewers. It's still the best out there. You're still winning the night. It's still compelling. It's it's the way to reach a mass audience. Maybe the last way, except in this household, like, you know, if you get a special HGTV, you know, some new house is being put up somewhere, that'll get big ratings in the Soshnik house. But if you want to go around the, the country, it's live sports, right? It's still all about the power of live sports. So let me ask you, because th- this number ha- has spurred kind of a debate about whether this game should happen on a different night of the week. I, I believe it's o- it's always on Monday night. I believe it's always the first Monday night where there's not Monday night football, yeah. NFL games. Um, but it, it does kind of stand to reason that potentially the biggest college football game of the year 
might do better, might do better ratings if it was on a Saturday, if it was on a Thursday. I don't know the answer to that, but I, it, it does seem as though for the people who think this number is underwhelming, that 22.6 million, uh, they are they are part of their argument is saying that holding it on a Monday night is maybe not the best time to maximize, maximize those eyeballs. Well, I'd like to have that conversation with those people because uh, I would say the prevailing wisdom is that you don't want a weekend. You don't want the, when more people are doing other things and they're not going to pay attention to their TVs. Uh, maybe they just got unlucky in that they didn't have a snowstorm blanket the rest of the country, right? That's really what you're hoping for. Like a Monday night, I mean, look at Monday night football, you know, you, you, you Monday night's fine uh, at a time when um, large swaths uh, of the country are stuck in their house and nothing else to do. That That's a great scenario, but uh, I, I don't believe that a Saturday or a Sunday would be better off from a ratings perspective, uh, perspective for this particular property than a Monday. I, that, that's just that's just a good time for it. And this is also a Saturday at the end of the year where the NFL is, is typically playing games. There, there were two games uh, on Saturday of, of this past week. So nobody wants to go up against the NFL. And Scott, that's an easy transition to to the next topic here. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Before you transition, I want to talk about the merch. Yeah, I want to talk about the merch for a second because I did just mention my buddy Witt and he was in the stadium, of course. You know, I look at those happy pictures with the confetti coming down. Um but I said, how many things did you buy? I sent him the story that you wrote about like the, the sales were just insane, right? And he's like, no way, the line was too long. I'm like, line was too long? Like, I, I don't know. Are we so out of touch, Novi Williams? Because all we hear is about sort of this, the digital world where in two seconds, I mean, obviously I know Fanatics knows that he's a Georgia fan. I know that. He must have gotten a hundred emails. Hey, get your championship gear. We'll deliver it within an hour to your doorstep, that kind of thing. And yet people were lining up in venue to buy the gear. Like I didn't know people still did that, but apparently they do. Yeah, I think there's two parts to that. One, as as quick as Fanatics is, they're, they're certainly not delivering it within an hour. You're not, you don't have it that night. You probably don't have it. The Come next on, day. Michael's Michael is in the parking lot with a backpack. <laughs> <laughs> that would be uh, Michael Rubin. I, I I would bet that your your friend would say that there's also kind of a nostalgia. I mean, you want to have the t-shirt you bought at, at the game. There is something certainly really exciting about having it when you're going out to the bar after the game that night or celebrating whatever it looks like, having the hat on, having the t-shirt on. I think there, there is definitely some tangible value and, and something that, that feels right about buying that championship gear in person, having it in your hands, buying it at the venue where you watch the team win the title game. Um, but but you're right, Scott. This this the, your your point there feels a lot like when you see these huge lines at, at, in Las Vegas for people betting at the sports book uh, for March Madness, and you know that any of them could open up their phone and, and literally place the exact same bet without having to wait in line, and yet people line up to to do it in person. I think there's a lot of people out there for whom this is just the way that that they think about transacting business, and they're more comfortable doing it that way, and and they're willing to inconvenience themselves for not having to do it in the in the flashy digital way. All right, let's. Let's go for the size and scope just so people understand how uh, voracious the appetite was. So it was how much Georgia merch sold in 24 hours, like more than Alabama did in 30 days after the championship last year. Is that right? One That's day right. versus 30 days. And Alabama was the, was the previous record holder for, for finesse. So, so Alabama sold more in 30 days last year than any championship team, any college football championship team ever had at, at fanatics and Georgia eclipsed that in, in less than 24 hours this year. And, and I think that's a, that's a function of 
40 years since their last title. When, when you're thirsty, you drink quickly. <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think the, the the number that will never be beaten, I don't think, is the, is the merchandise bonanza after the Cubs won the World Series in 2016. And it's not a coincidence that that was a 100-plus year World Series drought when there are high-profile teams that, that have gotten close a lot but never quite cracked through to a title. When they finally get it that first time, everybody wants to get their hands on on the merchandise. All right, let, let me it. just propose something just for fun because I'm trying like, in the two seconds you said that I'm like I trying to go through the teams quickly in my head and I, I'm just going to go with sort of the insane fan base that we know about that I grew up rooting for but I even I and I'm an old man I was born after the last championship of Joe Willie waving his finger in the air yeah. like if the J-E-T-S win a Super Bowl does that challenge the Chicago Cubs it's a good question I would Thank think you. Uh, I, I, I thought it's funny. I thought when you in, intro that you were going to go with the Maple Leafs uh, who haven't won a title in a, in a really long time and, uh, and are the kind of cream of the crop in, in the NHL from a brand perspective. Uh, I, I don't know if there's any, anybody and, and, and neither of us can answer this. I don't think I, I'd be curious if there's anybody out there who would think that, that any title instead, not in, in, in a hundred years when, when inflation has made all these things way more expensive, but, but any, any team that could win in the next two or three years that would top, what they saw from from the Cubs back in 2016. All right, since I ruined it now, let's just pretend we're on that same segue that you were about <laughs> to hit before. I mean, how, where were you going and how are you going to get into it? So we were talking real quick about the NFL and, and some big news out of the NFL off the field this week. The, the Denver Broncos, who, as you and I have discussed, seem to be heading towards uh, the team being sold at some point, just won a lawsuit. Uh, we don't have to get into all the details, but but a former team owner uh, whose family said that they still had right of first refusal on any sale. Um, a, a judge has ruled that, that that right of first refusal is no longer valid. It seems to be, and, and this decision could be appealed, but it seems like it is kind of the final hurdle before the the trust of Pat Bolin puts the team up for sale. We know they've talked to bankers. Um, Scott, this is going to be the biggest, if the team does sell, it's going to be the, the most expensive franchise ever sold in the U.S. And am I correct in saying that this is almost fait accompli at this point, that, that everybody in the market is expecting this to happen? Yeah, at least in the sports banking community, everybody's just waiting to see who gets the sell side mandate. Uh, And then what we haven't seen, you know, a marquee NFL team on the market. We did a Twitter poll a while ago, and I think the people got it right when they said uh, that the sale price will start with a four. And we're looking at a $4 billion transaction. But it was interesting, at least what the judge said, like way back when, like in, in 84, when Pat Boland and Edgar Kaiser bought the team, there was an agreement between the two. That should one of us want to sell, the other gets the right of first refusal. And in essence, the judge said that that deal only works between the two of them. It is not extended to any sale now that the trust is looking to it. And Joe Ellis, who is uh, running that trust, made it pretty clear. Like, first, we want to get a head coach, and then we are going to turn toward a change of ownership for the Denver Broncos. So uh, certainly, the leadership uh, of that trust right now uh, seems intent on selling that franchise. Does that does that uh, sequence seem kind of strange to you? I, I get that yeah. that there's only so many coaches out there, and you want to hire the best one as soon as you can. But it does seem strange to me that that knowing you are going to have a, a totally new ownership group, that a decision as big as who is the person running this team on the football side uh, is a decision that c- gets made before the new people come in. Yeah, two thoughts. One, you don't know how long the process will take. So then you miss out on really getting at least 
what, who the trust thinks is going to be a really good coach. And there are some out there. So I, I get that. But I was also talking to somebody else from the staff today. And we were talking about, does this give that prospective candidate a little more leverage in negotiations? Sort of, I'm walking into this really odd situation where you're hiring me, but I, in essence, am going to be working for, for someone, someone yeah. who did not, maybe did not want me or, or, you know, I have to prove myself. So do I, can I, as that candidate that they settle on, say, all right, I don't know if normally I'd get a three-year, but can I go in and say, I need like a four-year guarantee because this is such a weird, tenuous situation? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know if it gives somebody more leverage or not, or is it just tough? You want to coach an NFL team? You'll take whatever we offer you because, you know, it's a great opportunity. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I am really fascinated if if this team, when this team does hit the market, kind of what the appetite is, is like. Four billion dollars, Scott. You mentioned the NFL requires that the principal owner put a big chunk of that down in cash. There's honestly not that many people in the world that have the liquidity in cash to to, to cut that initial check. Really interested to see what the interest in li- is like, who the interest is it comes from. And then secondarily, who people like Peyton Manning or a John Elway, who, who are the the Denver, maybe former Broncos players or celebrities that end up in, in kind of high demand for groups that are looking for a little local flavor to their bids as well. Yeah, you and I have talked about that before when the Dodgers were being sold and coming off sort of a, a difficult ownership tenure. Frank McCourt, you really needed some LA gravitas as part of whatever group. Normally, the folks who are bringing the capital, they're the ones that do the interviewing. Like They sit behind the desk and bring people to their office. But it was the other way around with Magic Johnson. He was the one who summoned the bid groups and said, why should I join your group? You know, Having Magic smile and, and the gravitas that he brought to LA and the fans of LA, that was really important at the time. So I think that's the same here with Peyton Manning. Uh, it, it's almost like that he's as important or almost as important to whatever group or person will try and buy the Broncos as Magic was to the Guggenheim folks of Bowley and Walter. So, you know, he's in a pretty good position. Like he can sort of dictate terms and there, there's an equity of Q rating for him, right? He's going to have to put some money in, yes, and he's got it. But there, there's also, if, if I'm Peyton, I say I'm bringing the equity of me not only writing the check, but there's got to be a discount because I'm Peyton Manning and I can help you with this transition and, and, and be part of a group that the fans right off the bat will really enjoy. And the second thing, I think we've discussed it before, but uh, for those who might not have heard, what this told us when they were out looking at bankers and was that Jeff Bezos took a pass. Like mm-hmm. I, I find it hard to believe that if an NFL team was on the market and we know Jeff Bezos is interested, uh, that they didn't at least take a run and say, hey, we can do an off-market sale. There's no need for us to go through this process. If you want it, let's agree on a price and it's yours. So I would have to surmise that Jeff Bezos was asked and he said, no, thank you, whether he's waiting on another trust of Paul Allen to sell the Seattle Seahawks or whether the uh, whether he's still holding out hope of maybe the Washington football team might be on the market. I, I do not know, but I'm just guessing, no, no intel on this, that somebody would have at least put a call into Jeff Bezos and said, hey, you're interested because this thing's about to go on the market. To put a bow on this, the, the last NFL team that sold was the Carolina Panthers, a sale that obviously a significant smaller amount than, than what the Broncos are going to sell for. The Broncos are, are, are one of the probably the, the, the 12 or 10 most valuable teams in, in, in the NFL. But 
that sale process, I think, underwhelmed a lot of people. I think folks around the NFL were expecting a more vibrant, competitive bidding market than than what actually arose. David Tepper, obviously, the one who who ended up winning that auction. Um, but again, for for you have to put thirty percent down. We're talking a four billion dollar price. Let's say that's one point two billion dollars in cash that has to come down from the controlling owner. If it's not Jeff Bezos, Scott, there's again, there's really just not that many people out there that that have that cash sitting around to do a deal like that. There's our joke. We know Mike Bloomberg ain't interested. Not going to be yep. Mike Bloomberg. You can rule him out. I, as well. I can tell you 100. It's not going to be Mike Bloomberg unless he's had a real change of heart on pro sports since you and I were dealing with him. Um, but another thing that really I enjoy anytime a franchise comes up for sale is that sort of all right. Who are the bidders? Who's who's shown interest? Who's getting in the data room? All that stuff. And invariably, more than once, I say who. Like you know, the, there's some uber wealthy fellow or woman, and I have not heard the name before. I have to go look up who they are and say, oh, well, look at that. Um, they are. This this person is worth six, seven billion dollars in their real estate empire somewhere in Europe. Like It's happened before. Almost every time there's somebody I have to look up and go, oh, okay. So you can be sure also one of the things that occurs and one of the things that the commissioners do is that they stock a runway. Like They, they don't wait for a team to come uh, on the market and then say, oh, okay, who's interested? Let's, let's, let's see. They spend a lot of time ahead of time vetting p- people who come to them and say, I'd like you to know I'm interested. Can we start a vetting process? Put me on the runway so that when a team comes to market, you and I are familiar with each other. You and some of the owners are familiar with each other and we can get right down to business. And and those people very often, as you know, Scott, end up buying very small minority stakes in other teams yeah. just to kind of put their foot in the door to get the vetting process out of the way. David Tepper, who I mentioned had bought the Panthers, was a minority owner in the Pittsburgh Steelers before he bought the Panthers. The people that bought Tepper's Steelers stake after he had to sell it were Josh Harris and David Blitzer, uh, two people who I would not be shocked uh, if we hear their names, something connected to interest in in, in the Broncos at the very least. Uh, you're right. The, the, the league has a good idea of who the people are who are going to be involved here. And I don't think it's crazy to think that you could look potentially at the minority, small minority stakeholders in teams around the league and that there may be a future Broncos owner that comes from those ranks as well. That a boy, that's exactly Exactly right. All right, let's move on. MLB and Apple, a uh, story that we wrote last week. MLB in talks, serious talks about putting live games on uh, Apple Plus. Uh, everything's always plus. Uh, these are games so interested. I mean, everybody's waiting for the fangs to jump in and become the new, you know, I get it. Now you have Amazon uh, with Thursday Night Football and anything NFL related is obviously the king of the heap. Uh, how significant is this one it's they're dipping the toe in the water i get it so it's apple and they're in and they have all this money to spend but two w- without disparaging the property this ain't exactly the crown jewel of pro sports getting midweek non-exclusive even if they want exclusive games this is stuff that no other current broadcaster really wanted games that espn previously previously had and they decided to trim in their latest deal yeah, again, I, I see totally see both sides of this. I, I can understand how a, a company of Apple stature, trillion dollar market cap with the cash that they have, any movement they make into live sports rights is a massive story because of 
how much they can tip the market if they do decide they want to put a significant amount of money behind it. Uh, so in that regard, yeah, I think there's a way to look at this as a, as a huge, huge story. The other side, as you mentioned, th- these are midweek games that, that ESPN didn't necessarily want in its last round of negotiations. Th- this isn't a package that is doesn't seem to be a package that is being competitively sought by any means right now. I certainly understand why Major League Baseball, if they would like, if they want to have a, a partner like Apple or a deeper, deeper partner like Apple, uh, that this is something that really intrigues them. But this is a, a, a this is not a highly sought after group of games. We've also seen Scott both Facebook and YouTube in the past few years have streamed exclusive MLB games. It does not seem like either of those experiments have gone particularly well for for, for those companies. I, I don't think either of them decided that they wanted a, a deeper involvement after they had their first season of exclusive games. Uh, I, I am very curious to see kind of how Apple decides to, to to work with these, what the broadcasts look like, and then also what the metrics are that Apple is looking for to decide, oh, this is this is worth it, and, and maybe we should dive deeper into this world of live sports. Because it's, right. easy, it's easy with Amazon, I think, to see the, the synergy, and it's a little harder with Apple. Very happy you're here, not me, because everybody knows I am not one to bet on sports, as we mm. know. It's just not, you know, I'm, I'm not in there with you guys and the parlays and the, I, it's just not something I do. I, I don't care. I watch it. I'm following it. I cover it. But you do walk across the George Washington Bridge. You don't have to anymore. I know, but you were one of those. But Draymond Green of the Golden State Warriors presented this industry with a very interesting scenario recently. I will let you explain because you are the best uh, in the business. I think this is totally fascinating. I love so, it too. I love it so, too. Earlier this week, when when Clay Thompson returned for the Warriors, uh, the the Warriors tweeted out a little bit before the game that Draymond Green was injured and wouldn't be playing, but they said that he was going to be out for the opening tip off because he wanted to be out there with Clay. Uh, and and that announcement got retweeted by Shams. The, the the very popular Sham Sharania, the, the very popular newsbreaker on Twitter, and quickly spread around NBA circles. And astute gamblers realized as soon as they saw the news that Draymond was going to be credit credited with playing in the game, even though he was going to be out for the opening tip-off, and that was it. He was going to foul someone and then leave the game and not play again. And a lot of people rushed to their sports books and decided to bet on Draymond Green under the total the under, the under everything. <laughs> under assists, under rebounds. A lot of them created same-game parlays where they got a lot of uh, a lot of inherent value, obviously, because one of the things w- w- was guaranteed. There was a race at, at sports books to kind of counteract the thing. FanDuel, I think, within a matter of minutes had taken their Draymond off the board. I think it took DraftKings a little bit longer. Uh, the estimate here is that millions of dollars uh, was taken from sports books uh, that were not fast enough to, to catch up to the fact that Draymond Green was going to be, by their own rules, credited for playing in the NBA game, but was not going to have any statistics outside of a foul uh, to speak of. Uh, and I think it's a really interesting look, one, at the, the way in which uh, news that comes out of teams can sometimes uh, answer definitively what's going to happen in a sporting event that you can gamble on. Uh, and it doesn't happen all that often. But but this is news that the, that the Warriors put out. It was elevated by one of the most popular sports, business, or sports reporters on Twitter. And as a result, it gave gamblers all around the country a massive edge. Well, you and I have for years thought of the holy grail as stories involving sports and publicly traded companies, both in our previous lives at Bloomberg and even here, you know, we break a story involving a publicly traded company, we see the stock move. We often move the market. 
Um, and that's sort of akin to what's going on here. You're kind of moving the betting markets, but I'm not sure what the answer is. You certainly... Uh, not going to get in a world where the teams will tell the betting houses ahead of time things that are coming. That's that's certainly not going to happen. But uh, I can tell you who's probably doing a little dance of joy. And you and I have spoken about these companies, the betting companies, as platforms and as media businesses. And if I can have a personality that gets news far ahead of anybody else, and whether that is your your Adam Schefter of the NFL or Woj or Shams, there's great value there. And perhaps those guys uh, do not feel the need any longer to be beholden to a legacy media outlet, such as the ones they all work for now. And there's sort of a new world order and there's a real opportunity here. I think that's exactly right. That This is, to me, a perfect example of why a DraftKings or a FanDuel or a Caesars uh, would love to have Woj or have Schefter or have Shams uh, on their own payroll. The, these guys are often tweeting out, breaking, elevating news that has uh, real value for, for betters if they see it a minute or two minutes before other people see it. And, and, and this is a perfect example of kind of a weird oddity, a, a, a strange cameo at the beginning of the game for a player who was injured that ends up having a, a multi-million dollar effect uh, for sports books around the country. Um, and, and that's exactly right. There is news that, again, just like the, the, the example you gave, just like the way in which business reporters, if you see their stories or see their tweets early enough, that there, there's market moving and actionable investment news in there. Uh, there's also sports betting marketable uh, investment news from these guys, and they're going to be paid handsomely for it. All right. He is Eben Novi Williams on the Twitter at Novi underscore Williams. You beat me to the blue check mark, by the way. I am Scott Soschnick on the Twitter hey, now with that. the blue check mark. Shout out to our social media editor, Cor Veltman. She did a lot. I mean, yeoman's effort to get not only Sportico verified, but that makes it easier for all of us. And I hadn't really tried all that hard. I didn't really care. Um, my son had been giving me grief, though. Because I wasn't verified, like <laughs> you're a nobody. You're, yeah. yeah, so I called him over, by the way, and said, "Huh, look at that." And he was like, "I don't care," and walked away. So, I, I, I just think he's underselling it. But anyway, she likes it when I remind you that the show can be found at Sportacast, which is the hub of what will soon become the Sportico Podcast Network. 